When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whatever is in that box, it must be very precious. So many people have died for it. Yes, it is very precious. I want half. I agree with you. You should have at least half. You deserve it for all the creature comforts you've given me. But unfortunately, the object in this box cannot be divided. Then I'll take it all. If you don't mind. Gabriel. Listen to me as if I were Cerberus, barking with all his heads at the gates of hell. I will tell you where to take it, but don't. Don't open. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how the show works. I picked this week, I picked a movie that I love, that I've seen a hundred times. Sometimes I argue with Dan about it. He finally agreed. He agreed to watch it over again. And then we can just come on up and, and hit record. But he's had time to do the Dan, which is where he prepares his notes ahead of time and lets the movie stew. Uh, so Kiss Me Deadly, 1955, Robert Aldrich. Very famous role for uh, Ralph Meeker. And if you ever studied French cinema, this is one of those movies that kicked off the French new wave. Uh, that's what they'll at least that's what they'll tell you in class. So, Dan, you finally succumbed to my badgering and decided to watch the movie over again. What would you think? Well, first of all, I also want to note that this was written by adapted by the novel by Mickey Spillane, um, written by um, A.I. Bezzarides, who wrote Thieves Highway, which we love. We do love that movie. It's we do love the so let's talk about this movie. So so you have been badgering me for years to rewatch this movie, and I always kind of made a face. 
I, I got a long opening here. So I want to talk about reception history. Now, what reception history is, it's it's a, it's a you know, it's a part of kind of like literary study. And, you know, you know, I, I, I wrote this book about Flannery O'Connor, about her reputation, creating Flannery O'Connor, wherever good books are sold. And it's all about her reputation, how reputations are formed. Because sometimes writers rise to the top of the literary heap, not just through their talent, or in spite of their talent, or despite having no talent, but because of how they're marketed and who their agent was and, and at what point in time they were. You know, we don't just read Shakespeare or see Shakespeare now because he was like, quote unquote, the greatest writer of all time. I mean, his talent is obviously unbelievable, but it has to do with the way he's been taught and, and made part of cultural institutions. All right. Why do I say that? I would love to do, and I'm being totally sincere, I would love to do a reception history of this movie and pinpoint the exact moments where its stock rose because, and this is going to sound snarker than I want it to be, there's very little in this movie to suggest it would become the beloved movie that it is. Um, it, it was famous by, you know, the Kefauver Commission. Do you know this? In 1955, they singled this movie out as, as, a, as um, a, a cause of juvenile delinquency. So that's a great thing. That, that certainly rose its stock. But all I can think about is that it, it, everybody loves this movie because of the ending. And we'll talk about the ending when we get to it, right? But at some point, and it's so funny, you just said this about the French New Wave. At some point, film theorists grabbed this movie and, and it wouldn't let go. I saw it for the first time in grad school and, and people went bananas about this movie. I sat there with one eyebrow raised. Um, and it's not terrible. Like, I'm not like dumping on the movie. But the idea that this movie deserves its reputation, I think is not, and I don't want to say it's unwarranted because then it's just like, well, you know, uh, you know, my dad could beat up your dad or like, it's like trying to argue with somebody why they should like pistachios. Like if you love the movie, you love the movie. But I think if you look at the other noir we've done, like out of the past, you know, detour, you know, um, you look at the big sleep, no time for tears. This has all that noir stuff in it, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't hold up with, with these other films. And I'm fascinated how it arrived at this hallowed spot in the pantheon so why did it what do you think i know why the french liked it which is that it it seemingly breaks down narrative and visual norms right it, nobody shoots like that people don't talk like that cause and effect shouldn't work like that i know what i'm it doesn't give you what you expect to go into a movie to get and in fact it seems designed to deny you some of the pleasures a film but to try to replace them with with other pleasures. Um, there's many things that I didn't like about uh, Boz Lerman's uh, new Elvis movie. But somewhere along the line, one character says to another that really great performances give you something and you're not sure how to feel about it. Or it, it like it, it makes you feel pleasure from something you're not sure that you should feel pleasure from. And I think that that's the that's the overriding mood of Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, Mike Hammer is not a good person. His quest, his search to find out what happens to this woman and what he ultimately gets wrapped in um, lacks nobility from start to finish uh, to the point where even staircases are not shot this, the way that staircases should be. Boxing gyms, to uh, precursor my moment, are not shot the way boxing gyms uh, should be in, in other movies. And so the deliberate stifling of audience expectations and the replacement with something else, whether that's mood and may, and maybe I could see how if you can't get into the mood or the particular flavor of this movie does not appeal to you, that no individual scene is going to appeal to you because I think that they're that they exist largely in relation to one another 
to create and sustain that mood. But I, I think that it's it's in the denial of expectation first. But I think that's also like the deductive school of film criticism. I think that I think that people say this movie's great and I'm going to find out reasons why it's great instead of the other way, which is kind of like you watch a movie like, wow, this movie's really, really good. It's 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 like it's been it's been put out there as this masterpiece. So you just said, well, it's it's great because it denies all your expectations. Well, every great movie denies your expectations in some way. Right. Every great book denies your expectations in some way. Out of the past gets out of the past is a great movie that gets away with something you you shouldn't be able to get away with which is no, nobody likes flashbacks that are that prolonged nobody but but I do when I watch out of the past and it but it makes me fall in love with its characters it, it plays on my humanity um when I saw this movie I didn't have somebody standing over me telling telling me it was great I knew it didn't I knew it didn't feel like other movies there's sometimes you're watching a movie and you think man just slap that guy why did you see it why did you see it the first time you saw it well, it was it was in a film class, but right, nobody said, exactly. but nobody said but nobody said it was a nobody said it was a masterpiece. But it's being shown in a film class that gives it some kind of clout, right? But I mean, but still, like the fact that like film schools love this movie, but I think that that love is is kind of irrational, which I guess all love is to some degree, right? But you know, this movie's got like Ralph Meeker's a cipher. He's 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 just no good in this. There's not a and I know this is going to make you go crazy. You ready? And you can't see Mike's about to roll his eyes. Get ready. Uh-huh. There's not one memorable line in, in the whole movie. And don't say va va voom. Do not say va va voom is the memorable line. So don't take a memorable line, any memorable line, but that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the problems with the movie is that this is movie is very, very clunky. You know, Robert Aldrich also went on to direct the dirty dozen, which I saw recently. Mm-hmm. And everybody remembers the dirty dozen as I think a little better than it is. Cause you may remember, I kept saying we should do the dirty dozen. And I kind of stopped saying that. Cause I watched it again. You're like, yeah, there's like an hour of this movie you could lose very, very easily. Cause you remember it better than it is. And I think that this movie is filled with, with clunkiness. I don't know then how to explain why I find it compelling. Nobody told me to find it compelling is what I'm saying. I, I could understand. Um, I did later study the French New Wave and I rewatched this movie by somebody who said, OK, let's let's watch the the American movies that influence, you know, uh, Cahiers du Cinema or something like that, that, you know, where, where Godard launched the help launch the new wave with Francois Truffaut or something like that. But that's but that's not how I saw this movie. I saw this movie as somebody who, for reasons unattached to the fact that the film that that they just want the movie to work is out for themselves. It's one of the first movies for me seeing it as a young man that makes sense because some guy is is just out for himself and just wants to figure out the way things work which if they made a movie about me is how that movie would work because I'm not the guy from out of the past, you know, and I'm not Indiana Jones. I don't think it belongs in a museum. I am much more Mike Hammer. You know, if I, if, if I were looking for something that that's the reason that, that I would be looking for it. I, I think it has to do with, a it, it has to do with a lot of the things that we either have um, fulfillment dreams um, or nightmares about. And and how quickly a fulfillment dream turns into a nightmare, and the fact that that in one second you're getting what you want, and the next second you're not getting what you want, and nothing seems to make sense except I know that I have to go to the end of the dream, or that I want to go to the end of the dream, and so I, I think it works on an intuitive logic that doesn't have a lot to do with slick art. I know that I like it for its lack of slickness, which um, 
I, I heard you malign, but we'll uh, we'll skip yeah, over that. I, okay, right. Maybe, maybe point taken. I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of movies that are not slick, which we, we can agree that we can agree that the shoes are very clackety. The shoes are so clackety, and there's moments in it, right? Like her dangling feet in the pliers, horrifying. He gets more done with that one image than whole movies do in terms of like making your stomach hurt. And there's moments in it that are great, but all I'm saying is that when you when you look at this film, if you were just shown 10 films in a row and you knew nothing about any of them, I, I don't think this movie would make an impression. I think I think it's I think it's been carried along the wave of film criticism. That's you know that that's that's a a, a freaky thought experiment. No it's not a freaky our, our, thought experiment. our film our film watching does not exist in a vacuum i think that this that this film in particular works in the logic that's written into the human brain of i want something i know something's standing in my way but i'm going to go get it and i without ulterior motivation well that's every detective movie every detective movies i want to find out how the world works there's something wrong with the world i'm going to fix it well yeah, my camera my camera doesn't want to my camera doesn't want to fix it he just wants it he wants to he wants his cut because it's bigger than a divorce case. That's what he's like. This is he tells the secretary, "This we're onto something big here. He's going to cash in on it." Yeah, that's right. fine. That's fine. And I think that that's like the Matthew effect. How like the more the thing is praised, the the more praise it receives. Okay. Well, no, but here and and here's why. Because the reason that this movie got made is because the exact same effect that I'm describing is directly from the Mike Hammer novels, which were furiously successful. And worked very different than than any other detective novel that were out. And and again, I I don't I'm not going to call Mike Hammer like the anti Dick Tracy or something like that. But but there is a sense in which Mike Hammer is, is always out for Mike Hammer. And you can say that the detective novels themselves are clumsy. In fact, many people did. But Mickey Spillane sold millions and millions and millions of copies for exactly that reason because he was tapping into some kind of I mean, I'll say it's destructive energy, it, it, but it, it was an unadulterated dose of destructive energy in 200 pages such that I, I have an omnibus edition of my camera novels where four or five of them, you know, f- seem to fit in the space of 300 pages. So I don't know, you know, it, it, how long they are, but they sold out of every newsstand before they decided to make these. In fact, I think some of the clumsiness that you're talking about might even be an indication that these are extremely faithful adaptations. Can you imagine a slick my camera movie it's it seems difficult to it's it's clunky like the sentences are clunky but it but it it's like a junker car it just works on this motivation that it's just not going to quit it's going to the end you know but but that doesn't make it a uh that doesn't make it a maserati Welcome back to part two. And before we get to our favorite moments, I just want to go on record on the pod as saying, I don't I don't dislike this movie. I don't poo-poo it. It just strikes me as puzzling that people, including you, Mike, that people are like, I can't believe you don't love Kiss Me Deadly. That That's all I'm saying. And maybe I'm wrong. It's fine, but let's have a conversation because who knows, by the end of the conversation, you might have convinced me that there's more going on here than I saw. It may, maybe, but I, I, I think that there's just something, there's something more elemental going on in this movie and i think that art is sometimes constructed to make you obey its logic through aesthetic principles if i'm if if i'm just if i if i can trick you if i can surprise you you'll trust me and i can take you a place you didn't intend to go that's that's how art works the source material itself works in such a way i'm not going to impress you aesthetically but i'm taking you where you were going anyway 
I'm taking you to the place where when you close your eyes at night, your brain goes and it, and it's like, well, I, I don't even want to go there. You're not tricking me into going there, but I guess I'm going there anyway. And I, I think that that's the, that's the elemental nature of the books and the movie. So let's talk about our favorite moments. What's yours? Well, uh, I do, I do have kind of like a classic, uh, Kaye de cinema moment which is when uh, Mike uh, Mike Hammer is talking to the guy at the boxing gym and they're talking about the new beautiful boxer uh, who's going to fight and make his premiere. And in his amateur record, he's totally undefeated. He's a real winner. And M- Mike Hammer, they, they spend uh, at least two to three minutes just talking about the fact that the, he knows that this guy's going to throw the fight. He knows he's going to throw the fight. He's going to promote him and puff him up and blow him up and show him off to all his friends. But on fight night, he's going down. And what any other movie would do is have you hear the dialogue and then turn and face the ring. And for whatever reason, the actual boxing is not going on in the ring. It's going on between uh, the fight promoter and my camera. And so the camera stays with the real fight, which is them while they watch the action happen off screen. It's just a violation of the rules of classic cinema. If you're watching Notorious, for example, and Cary Grant is talking to uh Ingrid Bergman about a horse race, you can see them and then you can see the horse race um, with the Hitchcockian binoculars and then it'll go back to, uh, you know, the two of them talking. But again, this this seems to be an intentional violation of the rules to produce some some other effect to get to some kind of otherness in the dialogue that it, that a normal movie, a, a normal movie with that much fodder to shoot cannot resist. It wants to show the thing in the ring because it, it wants more stuff in itself. And this movie seems to not want that. It seems to, to shed some of the, the armor and fodder and grist for the mill that other movies subsume. So my moment is in the beginning where Mike's driving down the road, he sees Cloris Leachman running and she just enters the movie suddenly. And with that explanation, the way people will enter your dreams, like suddenly with that explanation, but what's also interesting is that she's running and she's got that that um, raincoat on. And then uh, later in the movie, we meet her roommate, Gabrielle, right, with the short hair. And she's also naked under a bathroom. So you have these like th- these these things start to double up in the movie. And my moment has to do with those two and Velda, Mike's secretary, and the part where you, he starts talking to her and you realize that he uses her because the other cop says he uses her to kind of like bust up divorce cases. And he, she gets husbands to, to, to sleep with her and then they they use that for blackmail. And what's interesting in this movie, the way those things all go together is that this movie combines two things. I think it's like like sex and atomic power. And, and that's kind of like, they, they go together, right? So in, if you were watching this film and somebody else were in the room and they couldn't see what you were watching and you had the opening credits on, they would think you were watching a blue movie. They definitely would think you're watching a porno movie because it's all of her heavy breathing and gasping while the credits are going on. And you hear like that Nat and Cole song. So that made me start thinking like, well, this is also strange. Like every like every kind of weird thing about it is heightened like a dream. And everybody in the movie is weird. Have you noticed that? Like I'm making fun of the Vava Voom guy, right? When he talks to the truck driver, when he meets Friday, um, when he's at the house of the guy who plays the butler in Citizen Kane, um, the coroner, the guy that runs the locker room, everybody in the movie is like a David Lynch character, right? Isn't everybody in the movie like kind of like a couple degrees off? Yes, every everybody is. Yeah, and so I think that the my moment when he talks to to 
Velda is like the sex in the movie is all like that as well. Like these women come out of nowhere, barely dressed. The one, the Friday starts to kiss my camera. It, it, there's, there's, there's not a, a cold stone logic to the way the plot is done, nor is there a way to wait. Like they all want to have sex with my camera. Like everybody does. I, I guess. And again, just going back to some sort of intuitive or elemental logic, right? Um, um, imagine that most movies never rise above a seven in the wish fulfillment department, but they never go below a four in the nightmare department. Like bad things happen, but they're logical consequences of bad things happening, like in out of the past, right? You, you screw over the wrong person. It's coming back for you. Right. So that's not a nightmare that or in the killers, which we just did the killers. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So that's not a nightmare. That's a consequence. Right. You get a little bit of what you want, but you don't descend into the pit of hell either. The the the, the logic of this movie seems to be let's set it at it. What happened if we set it at a 10 and a zero? What if every time you walked into a room and there was a beautiful woman, she did want you? What if what if every time you encountered a, a, a guy who didn't give you the information, you could just smack him without consequences? What kind of universe would you live in? You could also sink all the way to the bottom. The consequences for for whatever that wish fulfillment is would be would be equally unlimited in the in the opposite direction, right? For every reaction, there's an opposite and equal reaction, and so you can get whatever you want, but the pit of hell is wide open. And in fact, it's care people are carrying it around, and it's in a briefcase. Well, Mike Hammer, of course, doesn't care about the pit of hell because he he's fine navigating through this weird dreamscape. Because, you know, Kurt says you have to make a friend of horror. That's what he says in Apocalypse Now. And that's what my camera's done. This is not, he is not Philip Marlowe. Like down these mean streets, a man who must go who was not himself mean. He He's fine with the dream logic of everything because that helps him, it helps him get, get go from score to score. He's he's enjoyed it. And he's, yeah, score to score is, is perfectly said, branch to branch, right? He's He's swinging through the trees of it until someone's burning the forest down. Welcome back. In part three, we always talk about the ending. Well, if you want an ending, this movie's got one. So, Mike, what is your take on the opening of the box? Well, I I kind of I've touched on it already. So probably if you've listened to the first 10 minutes of this or 12 minutes of this or whatever it is, you already know how I feel about the box, which is that when you exist in this universe out for yourself, you're getting what you want. 10 out of 10. It bottoms out. Right. The The problem with out of the past or the beautiful thing about the killers is that life will go on for everybody else, right? When when the assassins come in and kill you or plug you, they're plugging you. But the kid who ran to go warn you, you know, is going to grow up big and strong and buy the gas station. And who, who knows what what happens for him? But there's an implied future in the narrative. And the, the sadness or the drama of death is that you're not part of that implied future. But there is one for everyone else. Uh, not so in Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, the the implied future uh, for everyone is that they have about roughly the same life expectancy as you, which is uh, either between one and five minutes because something else, something has been unleashed, which is which is too elemental. Um, you know, I don't want to push the dream thing too far, but it's it's the great waking up or it's the it's the it's the end of the dream. And so like all dreams, you know, it, it goes on longer than it seems right but but eventually it comes to an end whereas again th that's not the expectation of art most art works because it implies this future but the implied future is uh it's an optical illusion it's like if you see renaissance art it looks three-dimensional of course it's two-dimensional and that has a lot to do with shading 
there's no shading in this movie. The end of the movie is the end of life is the end of the movie is the end of the end. It's the noir version of Dr. Strangelove. It's well, the, there's also I could argue that maybe that Dr. Strange, Strangelove is a noir. But yes, it, if Dr. Strangelove were in it, but you're you're spot on. So there's all that Cold War stuff, which is another reason why, and I'm not being sarcastic, it's another reason why I think this film has risen to the level it has. It's a great Cold War document, right? This thing is atomic power, atomic weapons have been unleashed on the world. Whoever's hands they fall into, that can spell the end of everything for everybody. And sometimes when you're dealing with stuff this scary, you got to get dirty yourself to, to, to kind of deal with it and save the world. It's the it's also the premise of Lord of the Rings, right? There's this There's this weapon that's so powerful, we have to destroy it. When the movie ends, it's almost like Mike Hammer is 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 almost aware that he's in this story and he's just watching it watching it end. If that makes any sense, you don't really lucid dreaming. Yeah, it's lucid. That's exactly what it is. That's why I couldn't think of it. It's lucid dreaming. It's that moment where you're kind of in between sleep sleeping and wakefulness, and you kind of know you're dreaming, and you're you're either like struggling to wake up or struggling to stay into the dream. Yeah, I I, I couldn't have said that better. I mean, I will say that. Um... I, I believe that the the script writers and some of the producers ran into Mickey Spillane around town. Uh, and I think that their confrontations were uncomfortable because I don't think that he was comfortable with with what had been done, because, of course, in true Mike Hammer fashion, Mickey, Mickey Spillane does not let any of his materials end. Right. They They all go on and go on because of this dream logic, because it's not held together by aesthetic principles. Why not write a hundred of them? Why not write a million of them? Right. His his job is to keep pounding them out to get deeper and deeper into the stream logic. Um, but you know, uh, Kiss Me Deadly violates the key principle of Hollywood production today, which is always leave room for a sequel. Oh, right. Yes. There, there's no there's no Mike Hammer comic universe because it it ends. 90 minutes after it began there's no post-credit sequence where, where, where another another villain finds the box so thanks for listening everybody you can follow us on twitter at 15min film you can also follow us on letterboxd let us know what to watch next that was fun mike thanks great pick 